It's Monday, November 7th, 2022 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's something I wanted to say about the midterm elections, and this is a great place to say it. I wanted to tell you why I thought the Republicans would win. It's a pretty simple and straightforward explanation. In fact, the word straightforward is the explanation. Republicans will win, and by win, I mean win many more seats in the House, and I do think take the Senate, but maybe not. But have a very good night for the reason that they have a more straightforward explanation on the issues that Americans are most concerned with. That's it. That's the entire explanation. Now, I'm not saying that Americans are inherently wise or that they have a gift for discerning the truth or the straightforward explanation is the true explanation. But I think in many cases, the Republican straightforward explanation is true or has elements of truth. Let's go and talk about the most important issues to voters. Number one is inflation, and also up there are crime and abortion. Now, sometimes they get ranked as the three of the top five issues if you include other economic issues like just the economy in the polling. I recently saw a Monmouth University poll taken two weeks ago where they said that uh, 32% of Americans were very concerned about jobs and unemployment. I mean, I understand that, but jobs and unemployment are at record low levels. So this thing that is motivating a third of voters couldn't be better, really. In fact, it's a little too good if you understand inflation, which maybe the voters don't. But when it comes to, let's say, crime, here is the Republican explanation. If you punish people less, you will have more crime. And here is the Democratic explanation. No, 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 it's much more complicated than that. And much more complicated than that will always lose. In 2020, I think we could all remember, there was a national conversation about policing and crime. And the Democratic idea was we have to reform policing and we could still maintain low levels of crime. Republicans generally said, no, if you reform policing, which is to say, punish people less, crime will go up. And then they punish people less and then crime went up. Now, I understand all the nuances. Believe me, I understand all the nuances. And they didn't really punish people less and it was just to punish people less. And the amount of crime went up is maybe not so great as other years and cash bail reform is necessary and there's a big fight over how much that played into account. It doesn't matter. The explanation, Democrats, we can punish people less. They would frame it as some other phrase. We can punish people less and still keep crime down. Republicans know you can't and they didn't, or at least those two things, low crime, less punishment, did not happen at the same time right now when people are voting. Very straightforward. It's kind of like inflation. The Republicans said, if you pass this stimulus act and later if you pass this infrastructure act, inflation will rise. And the Democrats said, no, it didn't. And all the Democrats supported the stimulus and none of the Republicans did, though some of the Republicans supported the infrastructure spending. But guess what? They passed the stimulus act and inflation rose. There were a couple Democrats, Lawrence Summers, he said, yeah, there's going to be inflation afterwards. He said there definitely was inflation, but it was straightforward. If you do this, this will happen. You did this, this happened. Now I know as a sophisticated consumer of the news or someone who knows economics, maybe more than a sentence, if you pass it, it will go up. You are saying, but it's up everywhere. Or you are saying inflation doesn't exactly correlate to that spending. Or you're saying the national debt is denominated in dollars. We could always service that. Wait, why are you injecting an MMT argument into this debate? But it is very straightforward. The Republicans said, if you pass this bill, inflation will go up. And then inflation went up. The people don't like that. The people are going to reward the Republicans who warned us and not the Democrats who passed the bill. You might not think that's fair, 
I personally think it's a pretty small portion of inflation that is due to Democratic spending. And there's bipartisan spending under Trump. And if you look at inflation of the EU and supply chain and, 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 the straightforward explanation has always been the one that has won elections in my lifetime. But look at abortion. On that one, I think the Democrats have the much more straightforward explanation. If you illegalize abortion, fewer women will have access to abortions. Oh, and the health of women will be in jeopardy. It's exactly what happened. If you pass this or if the Supreme Court undoes Roe versus Wade, we're going to have these consequences. You won't like these consequences. And that's all exactly what happened. But the problem for Democrats is that inflation and crime are more important issues to voters right now than abortion is. Is this right? Is this fair? No, I don't know if it's fair. I'm not here to make some sort of normative judgment, but it is logical. It is logical in that everyone is affected by inflation. And it is logical in that everyone, if not affected by crime, thinks they could be affected by crime. But not everyone is affected by abortion. I know some people, and it's not an implausible argument, say, well, actually, we all are. If we deny women abortion, not only are we engaging in something immoral, but these women will be forced to have babies and societies will have to pay for that. And maybe we'll even pay for that in higher crime rates. Yes, but the people who are going to the polls saying this thing can happen to me or plausibly is happening to me with inflation is 100%. With crime is something like 100%. With abortion is about 20% of the voters. What? Yeah. In the United States, the median age of Americans is 38.1. The median age of the American voter is above 45. Or just look at these numbers. In the 2020 election, 60 million voters aged 44 to 18 voted. 93 million voters aged 45 and above. So women of childbearing age right, are 20% of the voters. Now, I know there are a lot of sympathetic men on this issue. I know that there are a lot of people who are worrying about their daughters who can't vote. But can it directly affect me and my life? 20% of the voters can say, yeah, it can. Not when I think back to when I was a kid. Not do I worry about family members? Do I have sympathy for some woman I haven't met in a far-flung county in Texas, but could it affect me? Inflation could, crime could, abortion in many, most 80% of cases can't. The ones with the more straightforward explanation wins. On the show today, I will now get to the question of not who will win, but why are supposedly perspicacious pundits on the liberal side predicting that Democrats will win? What drives these predictions? Is it just partisanship or something else that's out there saying, no, 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 red wave. Look at this one poll that I've been watching. But first, the midterms, the grand pageantry where the will of the American people is on display or look through a slightly less uplifting lens, Who wins the midterms tells us which candidates attempted kill shots, fatally drew blood, and which wounds were sufficiently cauterized. This Matthew Brady-esque picture of even the victors moaning in agony at the carnage fits in with the reality that we are living in angry, angry times when it comes to politics. So today and tomorrow are meant to be a tonic, some hope. Our guest is Stanford professor Rob Willer. He's been studying in the lab effective strategies for reducing toxic polarization. There is hope. We have enough tourniquets. Rob Willer up next. 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Barry Goldwater once said, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. And I think many people who identify as conservatives today would agree. Now, the word liberty isn't so highly salient among left-leaning people, but you know what? Change it to equity, justice, democracy, you would get agreement. And if you go further and take the next part of that Goldwater quote, moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue, you would get widespread agreement. I think most partisans of all stripes, actual actors or just voters, would agree with that. But polarization is costing us. The deep animosity and antipathy is threatening our country. And when you look at moderation is as not being a virtue, you have a problem. The antipathy is from both sides. Now, when I said both sides, some percentage of you said, oh, no, you're going to both sides this? The idea of both sides is constantly assailed, which tells you all you need to know about polarization. We always say, it's not my side, it's the other side, which is the exact characteristic of a polarized society. Looking at all this and trying to find a way to break through not just polarization, but anti-democratic sentiment is Rob Willer, who's a professor of sociology and director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab and co-director on the Center of Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. He has a new mega study about different ways to get through polarization. It was fascinating and heartening. Rob, welcome back to The Gist. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Mike. It's been years, but our polarization has not gotten any better since then, has it? No, we're still chewing on this problem in the lab and in society at large. I think about some of our societal problems when it comes to diets or how to solve homelessness or educational attainment. The question is what works? And the answer seems to always change. And sometimes nothing works. And sometimes it's, well, what question are you asking? And the studies are all over the place. It's really, really depressing. The entire idea of a TED Talk is 
to say, oh, their simple solution was in front of us. And then when they go back and test if the TED Talks were really correct, they usually weren't. But you did, or you surveyed this field on the question, what works to decrease polarization? If I'm reading your results correct, the answer is almost everything, right? It's really optimistic. Yeah, it's optimistic when it comes to what we call affective polarization or partisan animosity, which is just dislike between Democrats and Republicans, which, as you probably know, has been increasing steadily for 40, 50 years in the U.S. Uh, for that, I, oh, I should I should explain, we did this mega study where we invited uh, researchers, activists, you know, practitioners in the nonprofit sector to submit ideas that could be tested in an online survey experiment uh, for ways to reduce toxic polarization, partisan animosity, and also anti-democratic attitudes, which are a related but distinct thing. And uh, we got over 250 submissions from that. We selected the 25 we thought were most promising to test in this what we call mega study. And the results were really promising when it comes to partisan animosity. We found 23 of the submitted interventions were effective. Some of the interventions that were submitted had big effects that lasted for a long time. Uh, for democratic attitudes, we found, as you might guess, that's a tougher nut to crack when you're trying to get partisans to set aside their partisan interests to, to vote or defend vote based on or defend democratic principles, that's a tougher thing. So for example, we would measure democratic attitudes by asking people if a candidate from your party wouldn't acknowledge results of an election they lost, you know, would you still vote for them, basically? Items like that. And a lot of people, uh, the majority of Americans actually, Democrat or Republicans, say, yeah, I would still vote for that person, you know, because the trade-off in terms of helping the other side is not worth it to me for defending the democratic principles. So we're interested in trying to intervene on both these problems, partisan animosity and sticking to democratic principles. Mm, I like the fact that mega study is a real word in social science. <laughs> I mean, I read your study and it has phrases like Pearson correlation and, you know, bi bivariate correlations and confidence intervals. But what makes it a mega study is you add, you, you did it like a competition, like the SpaceX prize for polarization, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we offered cash prizes to those interventions that people submitted. There were the people submitting the interventions that were most effective at reducing these things because we really wanted to crank up people's motivations to work on these like thorny, difficult problems. Uh-huh. How much were the cash prizes? They were, you know, modest. They were like, we split $15,000 between, you know, all the people who effectively reduced each of these three main outcomes, partisan animosity, anti-democratic attitudes, and support for partisan violence, which was another targeted outcome we were really interested in trying to make progress on. There were only a couple that worked on all of the rubrics you were testing, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Probably, and, and I'll talk more about strategies that might be represented in multiple interventions, sort of like the, you know, the, the way to approach the problem. And probably the strategy that was most effective, that was represented in multiple interventions that were effective, was correcting misperceptions of what your rival partisans think, or what we call meta-perceptions. So like perceptions of what other people think. So not your own perceptions, your perceptions of what this other other group of people think. So this would involve telling Democrats, uh, you know, Republicans actual levels of support for partisan violence or dehumanizing attitudes towards Democrats and vice versa for Republicans. So it's a little complicated. But the reason that this intervention, this way of intervening is so effective is because Democrats and Republicans have just massively inaccurate perceptions of each other's average opinion on polarization related stuff like this. People greatly overestimate. In our research, we find 
people overestimate how much their rival partisans support partisan violence or political violence by like three, four hundred percent, just massive overestimates. Uh, they overestimate how much their rivals would forsake democratic norms for partisan gain by like a hundred. 150 percent something like that so if you here this is like a high leverage place you can intervene with just a little bit of data right you can just come in and say actually these are the real numbers and you get substantial improvements across a lot of outcomes and ones that can be durable we found can last even off of just a minimal presentation of information so so that's yeah. one thing you'd probably do first coming out of this is try to correct stereotypes of rival partisans on the political violence one, do Democrats believe Republicans uh, are more prone to violence than Republicans believe Democrats are prone to violence? That's very interesting. So Republicans report being a little bit more supportive of violence, and I believe a little bit more willing to engage in political violence. These, these are very small differences. They're not as big as how much extreme partisans on both sides are more supportive of violence than moderate partisans, if that makes sense. Uh, so it's a difference of degree more than kind. Um, and then I do believe you're right, though I, I kind of want to recheck this, that Democrats' estimates of Republican support for violence is higher than vice versa. But it's still pretty close, right? Yes. No, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the partisan stereotypes definitely have more in common than they, than they have different between them. And both are overestimating each other's support for violence at least 300%. Right. And I, you know, I've read a lot of the studies that show it's not just uh, the one party's perception of the other party's uh, opinions. One party's perception of the other party's just fundamental makeup. Like you ask Republicans, what percentage of the Democratic Party is African-American or on welfare? You ask Democrats, what percentage of the Republican Party is, you know, in the 1%, which kind of should just define, uh, it should right. be at yeah. least 2%. <laughs> they have... Totally, totally out of whack perceptions. Yeah, that's exactly right. <clears throat> it's just sort of all these seem to be of a piece with this idea that we just have these very exaggerated stereotypes of our rivals. This is probably a product of two processes. Like one is just our very, very biased information environments, uh, which are you know coming from social media. They're coming from the you know the now we can you know, self-select into, you know, very specific mass media sources that are uh, that are tailored to our biases. We also have social networks that are more biased than they have been. The regions we live in are more politically homogenous than they have been in the past. So there's all this just information stuff. But there's also just this raw social psychology thing where we tend to exaggerate and view more negatively people we really dislike that are in a group that we view as in competition with our group. You know, if you ask North Carolina and Duke fans, basketball fans, to characterize one another, you will also see, you know, really inaccurate stereotypes just be, just on the basis of strong intergroup animosity. Yeah, but then the Carolina fans will estimate that the Duke fans are all in the one percent. But in that case, they might be right. Um, no, that's the weird thing is that the North Carolina fans are more right in that case. Yeah. <laughs> um, so give me what's one or two of the studies, the actual interventions that were pitched to you that did really well in terms of correcting the misperceptions of the other party? How do they correct it? Yeah. So uh, so one was uh, a, an intervention we call misperception democratic, and it just gave data on how the rival partisans for a prior public opinion poll, how rival partisans had answered questions like the questions we asked about support for undemocratic practices. And so they would give just the actual raw data of the the average level at which Republicans say they uh, would be concerned about one of their leaders 
not acknowledging the results of a prior election or shutting down uh, polling places in areas that benefit uh, their rivals and so on. These kind of classic, you know, anti-democratic moves that we think about politicians potentially doing, prosecuting journalists who are critical of them. And in general, we find that uh, while levels of, support, of of acceptance of those undemocratic practices coming from your own party are concerningly high, they're not nearly as high as their as people's rivals think they are. If that makes sense, so uh, you would want these levels to be much lower. But partisans greatly exaggerate how high they are in their rival in among rival partisans. And if you just give that basic data, just very simply on a single page uh, or a single screen of a study, it can have it can have big effects. So is this the misperception democratic study? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And what's the misperception film study? So this one was a little bit uh, higher production quality. So the other one's just data, you know, that's just on a screen. And this one was a, was a film uh, that had, in addition to correcting information about people's immigration attitudes or the rival partisans' immigration attitudes, and also levels of dehumanization for their rivals. So like if you're a Democrat, you're finding out Republicans don't dehumanize you on average as much as you thought probably, and and the same for Republicans. Uh, in addition to that, it had sort of relatable exemplars of partisans on both sides talking, being reasonable people and looking at this data and sort of role modeling. Oh, that's interesting. I thought that these numbers were really different. So it was a little bit more engaging and a little bit more oriented towards like role modeling how to update your views in light of this kind of information. So it was it was a well-designed idea. And then there was a study, Utah Cues, which is, I think, two candidates for governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, P- Chris Peterson, different parties, did a joint PSA. And this had the same effect as the other studies you're talking about? Yeah, that's right. And this was submitted uh, by a researcher at University of Utah who, for whom this, this PSA was probably very salient. And in it, uh, Cox and Peterson just sort of appear together, you know, on on stage and talk about how they're both going to acknowledge the results of the election, regardless of the results. They talk about being ready to acknowledge results of the presidential election. And it's 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 cool. It's just the two rival candidates getting together and identifying that while they are competing, have different ideas and hope to defeat the other one in, in the election, they also at a certain level are cooperating on basic rules of the game, which they acknowledge. And it's the kind of thing that we don't make explicit during elections, but with confidence in elections at really an all-time low since we've been polling it, now, now is a good time to make those implicit norms explicit. And we found that when people saw this intervention, they reported less support for undemocratic practices, less support for undemocratic candidates, because they're seeing two examples saying, look, it's easy to not be an undemocratic candidate, and less support for partisan violence. So it was a really effective way to turn down the heat by having leaders from the party role model the right view, the right way to think about elections. And it's, it's actually kind of touching, you know, because these people are setting aside their self-interest to agree on these norms. I remember watching that video and it wasn't done for the purposes of let's try to uh, win win a study or show that this is a way forward in terms of polarization. It was just done because they thought it was civic hygiene in the actual race they were running in. But I, you know, I have a lot of questions about it, such as both these guys are Mormon, LDS. They're, you know, white guys in a fairly um, homogeneous state. It just seems like the circumstances uh, and even their policy positions aren't so divergent as they are in other contests. It seems to me that maybe the um, 
the fundamentals for that kind of video don't exist everywhere. And furthermore, I would think that most people who are running political campaigns or advising political campaigns would advise their candidate against this because you want to communicate that you're going to get out there and fight for them. And also that this is the most important election of your lifetime and a vote against you is a vote for, you know, essentially Satan. Yeah, I think, I mean, these are great points, Mike, on how it would be hard to scale this intervention. I think I'll throw another one in there just to make it even harder. You know, it's that it was a not very competitive general election right. as well. Peterson it was, like, was going to lose. <laughs> right. So there's no downside, you know, for either candidate. They're like, well, we might as well do this. We both believe in it. Right. So we're not going to lose. Neither of them had anything to lose. I think to be more optimistic about the potential to scale something like this and replicate it in the future. Uh, I mean, there are lots of non-competitive elections, <laughs> you know, where you could potentially uh, scale it. Uh, I also think that there, you, I think it's entirely plausible. You could make a similar ad spot with Barack Obama and George W. Bush, who I think would both like to do something like this, I bet. And I could see an organization being able to broker something like that in advance of maybe not 2022 at this stage, but the 2024 election, uh, or maybe in the wake of the 2022 election. It's also the kind of thing that I could imagine a media platform like Meta or Facebook, whatever we're calling it now, uh, promoting, you know, like because mm -hmm. it's bipartisan content, because they get criticized a lot for not, you know, for for playing some sort of role uh, in destabilizing election competent, confidence in the US. I think one other thing is that there's a lot of, political money out there that is concerned about democratic stability. And there's a potential to broker some sort of, you know, some, some bipartisan funded work here, you know, where yes. uh, you, you know, an enterprising organization could say, Hey, you know, if I can convince, you know, somebody to match the funds that's, you know, generally supporting rival, you know, the, the other party will you spend 10% of your donor, you know, of your, of your political donations, this cycle, uh, major donor to Democrat or Republican causes uh, on this stabilizing pro-democracy message, if I can match it. And you could potentially raise a lot of money uh, that way to promote an ad like this, even if you couldn't get free promotion from platforms like Meta and TikTok and so on. We will continue the conversation with Rob Willer when we talk about ideological silos and what to do with the perception, maybe the reality, that rival political parties represent not just policy defeat, but deadly danger, all up tomorrow on The Gist. And now the spiel. On this eve of Election Day 2022, we've all seen the polls, the predictions, the forecasts, the strong, strong TikTok memes showing that it's going to be a Republican year. Beloved podcast host Mike Pesca said as much in the opening to his popular The Gist podcast. But midterms are usually bad for the party in power, that is true, and Democrats still could hold the Senate. Thanks, maniacs who nominated, oh, let's call him a one-star general who won the Heisman Trophy and is a hillbilly and also a a heart surgeon. So General Dr. J.D. Herschel. Will he win? Time will tell. It is likely that they or a few of them will win. And all the empirical evidence says, yep, brace for that. The polls, the prediction markets, the 538 forecast, the experts that I most trust. But there are those who disagree. In fact, we in the media owe it to ourselves and our viewers to entertain differing views. So that's why Chuck Todd had on Sean Patrick Maloney of the DCCC to ask him an answer that Todd absolutely knew the answer to. 
And he got it. What constitutes a good night for Democrats on Tuesday? We're going to hold this majority. That constitutes a good night. Expected. In a similar category is a pundit like Donna Brazile or Jen Psaki, who are no longer in the direct employ of the Democratic Party or Biden administration, but are paid by their new bosses to be cheerleaders for their old ones. That's fine. We get it. Newt Gingrich and Mike Huckabee do it, too, on the Republican side. And more interested in the pundits who are certainly liberal, certainly philosophically opposed to the possibility of Republicans winning, but are also swayed by the belief that Republicans won't win, right? They don't just say Republicans shouldn't win. They're telling us, and guess what? They won't. Among them is Heather Cox Richardson, who has the most subscribed to Substack in the land. This professor of history has become a go-to source for what might be called resistance, or less insultingly, liberal-minded readers who turn to her for hope and solace. Richardson wrote a few days ago, so far, election data for next week's election is not showing the red wave the media has recently tried to argue was in the offing. Pollsters Simon Rosenberg and Tom Bonier both have focused less on polls and more on the early vote, which so far has shown Democrats overperforming. Uh-huh. Some early votes do, some early votes don't. Also, we don't know what the early vote means. It's only been around for a couple of years. We assume early vote equals Democrat vote, but maybe not. Take also the Deep State podcast, Deep State Radio. It's a collection of resistant liberals. Some former conservatives are also in the mix. Their election coverage has been reasons for democratic hope. In an episode last week titled Myth of the Red Wave, they had on Cecile Richards, former Planned Parenthood head, and currently the co-founder of the women's advocacy group Supermajority. The fact that the, the Democrats are competitive, so competitive now, in holding on to the United States Senate, maybe even adding a seat or two, uh, competitive, really tough governor's races, this is to me a sign that there's energy out there that maybe isn't being completely understood. Dark energy? Chakras? What is the exact energy at play? If the energy manifests as something other than votes, it doesn't really affect my life that much. The host of the show, Dave Rothkoff, is out with a new book about how the deep state saved us from Donald Trump. He has a column in the Daily Beast saying a Republican win would be good for Putin. Putin's last hope to win in Ukraine is a GOP victory in November. Now, the reason I bring this up is that these premises might be true, might not be true. But in order to convince me of them, it helps to stake out positions that are falsifiable and discernible in the short term. So Rothkoff is staking at least some of his reputation on clout on the unlikely event of Democrats doing really well on election day. I say if that doesn't happen, it would lower, in my eyes, his talent for discernment. Jennifer Rubin in the Washington Post wrote a story last week rebutting the red wave prediction Four reasons to be skeptical about election polling. Rubin's also one of the experts in a pretty neat Washington Post feature where you can pick the winners of tight races against the experts. She, along with her fellow liberal op-ed writers, Katrina Vanden Heuvel and Jonathan Capehart, who say that Tim Ryan will beat J.D. Vance in Ohio, Sherry Beasley will beat Ted Budd in North Carolina, and she is the lone columnist participating in this little game to predict that Katie Hobbs will be Kari Lake in Arizona. I don't get it. I don't get what the incentives are for a member of a profession, political punditry, a profession that trades on expertise to make these, I think, wild prediction, very, very, very low probability predictions. They're not like Donna Brazil. Their stature and clout rest on knowing things that we don't know 
So if you get this wrong, don't you risk embarrassment? If she and all the other red wave skeptics are so strongly convicted as to their analysis that they commit not just to a silly prediction game, but to column writing and public argumentation, putting themselves out there in identifiable ways, that's one thing. But what they're saying is that red wave, yeah, nothing to see here. Americans just aren't responding to the Republican message. But also, if it turns out they were and Republicans win by a lot, please do continue to consult me as an expert in the future on what Americans really think and who they're responding to. The best explanation I have is punditry as therapy. Audiences turn to pundits to assuage their anxiety. Rubin's articles gainsaying Republican electoral strength are always among the most popular on the Washington Post webpage. If you fill out that post prediction game, you'll find that post readers who also played along because they give you the percentages of the overall participants, they really think Democrats are going to do great. Only 9% think Herschel Walker is going to win. 40% thought Democrats will hold the House. So that's who the Washington Post columnists are writing for. And I guess it works. Of course, I don't put so much stock in polling that I think Democrats can't have a good night. 538 had a good article on how Democrats are just one polling error away from a pretty good performance. They Even they say Democrats have a 45% chance of holding the Senate. That's very good. My critique is more about how partisanship affects not just one's perception of the way it ought to be, but the way it is. But that's just how people see the world, I guess. I had just hoped that the people we elevate to the position of pundit literally seer, expert, or authority, would be a bit more insightful than the garden variety human. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, seer and authority, is assistant producer of the podcast. Joel Patterson is senior producer and senior expert on The Gist. Michelle Pasca is COO of Peachfish Productions. I think she has a 45% chance of retaining that position. Her midterm evaluations are looking very positive. The Gist is presented in collaborations with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>